Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, we're going to talk to David Sirota today, who, in my opinion, and I'll say this to his face, I think he's probably the single most underestimated journalist slash reporter in the country. I yeah. Think, I think he's got, uh, he focuses like a laser on the issues that actually matter. And that's actually why he's so severely underrated, because anybody who actually does that is, um, What's the term? What's the phrase? Persona non grata. Mm. I don't know why I had to break that out. It's like I don't, <laughs> don't use fancy. don't use things that are above your pay grade, Kyle. <laughs> That's the lesson right there. Yeah, I, I could no, way I mean, You're right. He first of all, he pisses a lot of people off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but he really focuses like a laser, oftentimes on corruption. Right. Which, sadly, oftentimes is what's driving what's actually going on in Washington. So excited to talk to him about that. He's got a couple other big projects, though. He co-wrote a movie that has, like, every famous person you've ever heard of starring Leonardo DiCaprio no, coming out. No, I was so confused by this, it blew up my model of the world in my <laughs> mind. I saw him, like, tweeting about it one day, and I'm like, what is he talking about? You, like, what? Oh, you produced a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? My ass cheeks, you did that? Like, yeah. what are you saying? Yeah, and then so he, he co-wrote this movie. Then he was like, here's the trailer. And I'm like, that's Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, and <laughs> Jennifer it? Lawrence and Ariana Grande and like all these other super famous people. So we'll talk to him about that. He's got a great new podcast coming out on the financial crisis and how it led to Trump. So we can talk to him about all of those things, not to mention the Bernie campaign and whatever he saw on the inside there. So that'll be good. Yeah, totally. So um, before we get into that, uh, why don't you introduce the people to the hilarious clip I came across involving Dave Rubin getting owned casually. Yes, you get full credit for this. Apparently, he got owned a couple of times. He went on this um, Daily Caller show. It's called Jason and Vance, save, Vince and Jason, there we go, Save the Nation. And it's a Daily Caller show, so I'm sure he thought like, oh, Daily Caller, easy. softballs down yeah, the center of the right plate, wing, I'm I right got this. It's all going to be good, easy right? Easy peasy. But one of the hosts is left wing, and one of the hosts, Jason Nichols is his name, is apparently very effective and did his research. And uh, there's a little moment here we want to show you where Dave is very clearly hit with his own inconsistent, inconsistency and hypocrisy. Let's take a listen to that. So you describe yourself as a classical liberal. Um, and as such, you're against, I'm assuming, mandating masks and vaccines, uh, even if they can be effective in pr protecting public health, because that would interfere with personal liberties of what to do with your body and life. Yet in your book, you oppose the legalization of Schedule One drugs because addiction hurts communities. Why are you willing to sacrifice the civil liberties uh, in some, in one case, uh, for the public good, but not in the other. So when I talk about the drug part, it's like, yeah, I'm for legalizing marijuana. I'm not for mandating that everyone smokes it. I'm for legalizing uh, most psychedelics. But then there's another class of drugs, basically, that are so highly addictive. We all know about, I'm sure you guys cover the, the fentanyl problem we have in the United States, the heroin problem. I was just in New York City, the amount of people that you see on the streets that are just laying there that are obviously on drugs, you go to San Francisco, I mean, go to most progressive cities, that you just unfortunately have to balance people's ability to make choices for themselves with some level of public good. So here, here's, a, here's the thing, Vince and Dave, like the classical liberal position is that individual liberty is paramount and there is nothing more that has to do with your own liberties and freedoms is what to do with your own body. So 
if you are going to say that I can't ingest whatever it is in my body, I think the classical liberal position would be, where does it stop? Can I not drink a, a, a big gulp because, you know, it may harm my body and they say sugar is addictive? Where, where does this actually stop? So my question to Dave is really about what, how he identifies as a classical liberal or, or even a libertarian when you're saying that there should be these strict guardrails. And then again, when we're talking about ingesting drugs, that's what I'm putting into my own body. But when we're talking about COVID, that is something that could affect the people around me. So that's a little bit different. And, and so I'm trying to understand how it is you marry those things. So there's a couple things to point out there. First of all, the point he makes there at the end is really important. Like, if anything, the argument cuts even more against Dave, because when you're talking about drugs, you're mostly only hurting yourself. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. When you talk about a vaccine, and this is why the politics are more complicated or the principle is more complicated because you have a couple things in conflict. You have people's individual rights and liberties, but then you also have you not getting a vaccine is having an impact on all the people around you. Or if you're unvaccinated, you not wearing a mask. Exactly. So um, what I like about the way he approaches this, though, is rather than debating the policy and getting into that back and forth, he shows like, well, here's what you said on this issue. He goes to first principles. And this does not square remotely with what you're saying over here now that this is a convenient political position to take for you. Yeah. So the first thing I love about that is um, that dude, Jason's his name, right? Yeah. He clearly either read uh, Dave's book or read portions of Dave's book. Yes. So I like that up front because he's like, well, let me see what this guy's actually about. And then he's like, hmm, this doesn't make any sense. And then he presents it to him. Um, And of course, the argument is, well, you're completely against safety regulations for a virus, but you're for safety regulations with drugs. And understand something, guys. There is no nuance in the commentary of Dave Rubin. Dave doesn't hit you with like, well, here's generally where I stand, but here's some caveats and some hedges. He was all in on like the full on classical liberal slash libertarian, get the government out of my life type stuff. And listen, it just it doesn't square. He he catches him in a clear uh, contradiction. And then there's one point where I was just like, God, Dave is so dumb. It's embarrassing. I actually wrote down what he said because it's just like. How does the light bulb not go off when you hear this, when you hear yourself saying these words? He says, and I quote, you just unfortunately have to balance people's ability to make choices for themselves with the public good. (laughs) That is literally everything everybody says about safety regulations for a virus that you mock and you laugh at and you swat aside and you call stupid. That's why Dave Rubin is a joke. There's no consistency. There are no actual first principles. He's a partisan hack working backwards from his conclusions. Yeah, well, and it is amazing that I don't even think he realizes. He doesn't. That's why it's so amazing and sloppy and sad. Yeah, that what he's saying is actually just making the point. Right. That Jason is making there. Like, unfortunately, you do have to balance these things. Oh, really, Dave? Do you now? This reminds me when I was debating Michael Knowles, who I think is also with the Daily Wire. Um, This is Daily Caller. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. So Michael Knowles, I think, is with the Daily Wire, not the Daily Caller. So different outlets. But uh, I laid this trap for him and he just like pranced right into the trap and didn't even realize he was in the trap as the audience was like, you're in a trap. Right. It was the most hilarious thing ever. I think it was with um, something about being pro-life. And I was like, oh, I'm glad to know you're against the death penalty. And he was like, oh, I'm for the death penalty. I was like, 
<laughs> this is going to be really easy if you just right. prance into my traps all day. Like, this is hilarious. There are a couple other things to note about this on the sort of theatrical level. Again, the reason why I think he was not really expecting this to be a challenging interview is because you can see kind of like the deer in the headlights <laughs> look. At one point, there's like a really hard swallow, like, go. Uh, now I have to actually think and defend myself here. The other thing that was interesting is, I mean, I hadn't heard of this show before. I'm going to follow Jason because he seems like a really intelligent Mm -hmm. and interesting person who clearly does his homework and his research before he conducts these interviews. This segment, which, of course, they hype up, oh, we got special guest Dave Rubin on YouTube. It has 852 views. Uh, Rubin uh, not exactly bringing uh, in the viewers uh, for their program. It's going to get a lot more views on Twitter, I think, than uh, than it ultimately got I can't. I can't. Uh, really make this criticism because I I genuinely think I'm being destroyed by the YouTube algorithm and my views are lagging to the point where like I'm embarrassed by it. So I can't necessarily make that criticism. But point taken. I mean, but what does he expect to happen when you totally switch ideologies within a short time span? You built an audience with one general philosophy and then all of a sudden you completely flip that philosophy and you're also just not bright in in the process of flipping your philosophy. The thing I can't get over is Dave has always portrayed himself as like, pfft, I'm the ideas guy. Like, I'm all about ideas, and I'm all about open discussion and discourse and free speech. And, like, this is what intellectuals do. And then literally anybody on the left who would challenge him, if Dave knows that this person is going to challenge me, he runs and hides. You know, he ran from Michael Brooks. He runs from Sam Cedar. He runs from anybody who would actually, like, go after him, and Dave knows that this person would go after him. And, of course, his dodge is, well, they're smear smear merchants. Anybody Mm. who's like harshly critical of me is by definition a smear merchant. So anybody who he talks to who is nominally on the left is somebody who's there to play patty cakes with him and say, oh, isn't the right correct about everything? And then so now, perfect example, goes on the Daily Caller where he's expecting to get a totally softball interview. And he didn't, he maybe didn't realize it was like a crossfire type show. Remember that interview he did with Marianne Williamson? Oh my God. Marianne Williamson ran circles around him in the most like (laughs) condescending motherly way too. Like, oh honey. Yes. Oh honey. you, Oh baby. I'm so sorry. You don't know what you're doing. She just utterly destroyed him. And it was probably the same thing. Like, he probably bought into all the media crap about how she was just some wacko Christmas Totally. And then she comes and is ready to just completely run circles around him. Uh, One more thing about this. The the host also totally checkmates him him on the issue of imperialism. He he reads a passage from Rubin's book to him, which basically says something to the effect of, the United States is not an imperialist nation. And then he reads through a list of like, well, what do you think this country and this country and this country and this country and this country would say about that? All countries that we, you know, there was either a CIA coup or we waged a war against them and overthrew the government and put in a puppet dictator. And Dave's reaction is effectively. Yeah, he's got nothing. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of it, the guy's basically like, just because the U.S. has done imperialistic things, that doesn't mean other nations haven't done it. Because I think that was Dave's dodge is to be like, well, other, other we're worse or something. Worse. Like, oh, the British Empire. Look at what they. OK, that doesn't take away anything from the point about America. That's a complete red herring. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I always respect people, even if I disagree with them, if I think that they are. Honest. um operating in good faith if I think that they're honest and if I think that they're consistent, Well, right? And so if I see, so, so sometimes like libertarians, right? you yeah. see like, okay, listen, on economics, I think you're insane, but at least you're applying your 
free market principles and your individual liberty principles over here on civil libertarian issues on and you know, war. spying and war right. and those sorts of yeah. things. And I can be like, okay, well, look, I, I get where you're coming from. And at least I can work with that because there's a consistent principle at play. With Ruben and with the next gentleman we're going to discuss, everything is just about well, how do I align with whatever the Republican Party stands with my tribe, for right yeah, now? My tribe. I'm, I'm a tribal idiot. Yeah, and I'm just going to work backwards to defend it based on whatever I'm, wherever I'm supposed to be based on the National Republican Party narrative. So I was watching this hearing the other day on Afghanistan, and there was this point that was made repeatedly that drove me up a wall. Tom Cotton pressed General Milley and basically asked him, like, why didn't you resign? And the reason why he wanted Milley to resign is because Milley gave advice to Joe Biden to stay in Afghanistan. And Joe Biden didn't listen to it. Mm. So Tom Cotton's blaming Milley for the actions of Joe Biden. And of course, the underlying principle there is, well, you have to listen to the generals. You have to do that. Right. Sean Hannity, same thing, uh, shared something from Jeffrey Lord earlier today, another conservative, where they're trying to make this this big scandal. Biden ignored the advice of the generals on Afghanistan. (laughs) And this is driving me up a wall because Donald Trump doing the same thing or threatening to do the same thing, right. every single one of these characters they loved it. would be like, oh, brave and strong and intelligent commander-in-chief Donald Trump doing the right thing and standing up to the military-industrial complex. Yes, so wonderful, so glorious. But Biden does the same thing, the thing that Trump promised to do, by the way, which is actually get all the boots on the ground out of Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and they totally flip on the principle. Yes. So this is the exact same thing we were just talking about with Dave Rubin. And before I get your commentary, what I want to do is show you, this is a consistent theme with Sean Hannity. And this is why, to me, he's always been probably the biggest joke on the right. Yes. So I want to show you a video back when we learned about the illegal NSA spying going on, unconstitutional NSA spying, where they're collecting all Americans' metadata. Under Bush, he was like, oh, this is to protect Americans, and this is wonderful, this is great. This is actually a positive thing because we got to stop more terror attacks. And under, under Obama, he totally flipped on the exact same program. Hmm. Watch. We know that you're against the NSA data mining. We know that you're against the NSA surveillance program. So the question is, where does the Democratic Party, what will you do if you're elected to power to make our country safer in the war on terror? Specifically, what, do your, what will your party support? Your party brags about killing the Patriot Act. You don't want the NSA surveillance. You don't want data mining. We have Pat Leahy saying that he doesn't want a a NSA surveillance program. Nancy Pelosi, the woman who'd love to be speaker. She's against the NSA surveillance program. You mentioned that, and you mentioned the very specific things, the Patriot Act, the NSA surveillance program. The party that's weak on national defense, that doesn't want the Patriot Act, the NSA program, the data mining program. Is it right to say that, that, for example, on issues involving national security, be it the NSA surveillance program, the data mining program, the Patriot Act, Guantanamo Bay, that Democrats are weak on issues involving national security. When our techniques are working, we've got the NSA program here, we've got the Patriot Act program here. You know, in light of this, how close this was, I, uh, it's staggering to me that we're even debating the use of these techniques in this country even at this time. Big Brother is monitoring your every move, whether it be online or on the telephone. Let's talk about why this story, why is this important to you? Number one, this is America, and as law-abiding American citizens, you have a right to privacy. Number two, these actions by the Obama administration are a clear, very clear violation of the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits unreasonable search and seizure. 
Number three, the Constitution. It is our rule of law. If we do not respect and honor the Constitution, then anarchy and tyranny will there follow. Incredible. So as you can see there, credit to Media Matters for putting that together. They're the only ones with the long enough memories to sort of remember, you know, going all the way back for that. I mean, listen, this is one of those stories where I don't have to say anything. You don't have to say anything. It speaks for itself. Um, if you're somebody who's inclined, and unfortunately, a lot of geriatric white men fall for this stuff like nobody's business. Uh, if you're inclined to look at Sean Hannity and think he's providing any meaningful commentary, you're just a hack like you're just a partisan you didn't actually think about any of the issues on their own merit right and form a conclusion and then judge accordingly and that is I, I know i speak for myself here but maybe you as well that's the worst kind of politics i have no interest in that kind of politics yeah and i think in fairness we call that out when we see it all the time in the democratic party of course on msnbc when suddenly now it's like oh george w bush is amazing this is the very network that like got its traction and foothold in American politics through bashing George Bush, rightfully so. And now Nicole Wallace hosts two hours on their network and they see her as like the future there. But I mean, with Hannity, it's shameless. And with the Republicans and grilling the generals this week, the hypocrisy was all there within the one hearing. You know, on the one hand, when it comes to Afghanistan, it's like, well, they told you you should keep 2,500 people on the ground. Why didn't you listen to the generals? But then when it comes to um, Millie making the call to China right. under Trump, yeah. that's a good point. Then it's like, well, the generals, what are they doing? Right. They're going crazy. They're going rogue out here. So even within this one hearing, right. That inconsistency and that hypocrisy is completely exposed. That's a great point, and that didn't occur to me. Um, to, to your point on the Democrats, their version of this, there's something that's completely analogous, which is the Democrats despised the CIA, the FBI, the intelligence agencies under the Bush administration, and rightly so. Yes. But then under Trump, all of a sudden, they Heroes. were 100% in favor of them, mm -hmm. and, you know— they went all in on Russiagate. There would be these proclamations with zero evidence that sounded completely ridiculous from the intelligence agencies. And oh, we have high confidence of X, Y, or Z, some sort right. of connection between Manafort and Julian Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy. When meanwhile, there's cameras all over the place and there was no meeting between the two of them. And Democrats go all in on that. And yes, act like the CIA and the FBI are heroes and they're really doing like pure law enforcement or whatever. It, that's the Democratic version of this exact same hackery. It's you don't actually have a position on NSA spying or constitutional issues involving the CIA or whatever it may be. It's just what's my team saying right now? And I despise that. Yeah, I despise that as well. And um, this is a good transition to our guest because part of what frustrates me about the way a lot of political journalism unfolds is you're not allowed to say things like what we just did critical of the democratic party if you're right. supposed to be on their team mm -hmm. with the fear that like oh you're going to give the republicans a talking point that's always the thing like oh this could be used by the republicans as if they're not perfectly capable of coming up with their own attacks and talking points um all on their own so someone who does not buy into that whatsoever who clearly is just as a set of principles and tries as a human being to apply them as consistently as consistently with his work as possible is David Sirota. He's been extraordinarily busy 
as I mentioned, obviously, he's on the Bernie Sanders campaign. Then he goes and starts his own independent journalistic outlet, doing something that's relatively rare in the space, which is true, original reporting that has been invaluable, I know, to us, I think, to the conversation and to exposing what's going on right now today in Washington with this reconciliation bill and the negotiations there. Um, He also, as we were mentioning, co-wrote a movie. And has a brand new uh, podcast series that is set to come out. So super busy, super interesting guy. Let's welcome David Sirota. David, it's so great to see you. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so as I was telling our audience, like you've been, you have all these different projects on your plate, and I want to talk to you about all of them. I want to talk to you a little bit about the burning campaign, what you see happening in Washington right now. But let's start with the Daily Poster. I mean, what is kind of your core value? What are your core, what's your core mission statement at the Daily Poster right now? We are a reader-supported news outlet that first and foremost follows the money and holds politicians accountable. I mean, basically, and I think the reconciliation uh, debate that we're seeing kind of exemplifies why we exist and why we do what we do, which is to say that to me, the reconciliation bill debate is really a, a, it's not a battle between progressives and centrists, quote unquote. It's a battle between uh, basic climate science, uh, the basic policies we know uh, we need to do to deal with things like the healthcare crisis and inequality and inequality. That's on one side versus blatant corruption, right? I mean, like, let, let's just be honest about what's happening here. I mean, this is a battle between uh, essentially what people need and what money wants. Uh, and But if you pay attention to the corporate media's coverage of this battle, you think it's a battle between uh, ideological factions or, you know, a palace drama or, you know, one or two politicians uh, over here who just have an honest disagreement. That, in other words, money is written out of the story. Mm. That there's a giant mountain of corporate campaign cash that lots of Washington reporters are literally standing in the shadow of and pretending doesn't exist. So part of the reason we exist is to actually focus in on telling the real story of what goes on in politics. And the way to tell that story is to is through the money. This is not a, a, a great revelation here, but it, it's it's something that's important to know or to remember, which is that politicians want to get reelected. Lots of them bank on the way to get reelected first and foremost, is to have a giant pile of money in the campaign coffers. And a way to do that is, regardless of whether a bill is popular or unpopular, just make sure to serve the donor class that will put that money into your campaign account, which come election time will allow you to buy the election. That is a major dynamic in American politics, not a huge revelation. But if you understand that that's a major dynamic in American politics, then the way to actually Uh, track what's going on in politics is to track that money that that you if you write that part of the story out of the story and to be clear yes there are some ideological differences yes one or two politicians have you know quirky views on certain things but if you write the money part of the story out of the story then you're not telling the actual story of what's going on and what the daily poster does every day is try to tell the story through following the money of what's actually going on in order to hold politicians accountable in order to give readers the information they need to hold their elected officials accountable. 
So uh, not just blowing smoke up your ass here, but I think you're the most underrated journalist in America. But uh, there's a reason for that. It's by design that you're the most underrated journalist in America because of what you just described, which is um, you're willing to follow the money and put two and two together. And that violates the cult of decorum in Washington, D.C., because the second that you question any politician's motivations, they, you know, throw you to the side. Um, and it's correct to question their motivations when they're taking so much big money and then voting in accordance with whatever that big money wants them to do. So uh, what do you think is going on? My biggest fear with what's happening right now with the reconciliation bill and Kirsten Cinema is that it looks to me, based a lot on your reporting, that, you know, she took $750,000 from Big Pharma. She was just raising money, $5,800 a pop at some event from all the corporations that are lined up against the reconciliation bill. Mm -hmm. The thing that I fear, David, is that She's already made up her mind. I don't want to run for re-election. I want to leave Washington, D.C. I want to cash in as a lobbyist or something. And so there's effectively nothing that Biden or the left in Congress can do to make her fall in line. Do you think that I'm correct in that? Well, first of all, uh, to, to respond to your first point, which is about media and what is accepted and not accepted. You know, there was an interesting uh, moment today. Uh, a political reporter tweeted out saying, saying, there was a, this is what this reporter was saying. There was an awkward moment when Joe Manchin was asked about his coal ties. And I said, uh, this is on social media. I said, why is it awkward for reporters to ask, you know, members of Congress about their financial ties to industries that they're legislating on? Like, why is that, that isn't, that should be an everyday occurrence. Why is it only a moment? Like, Shouldn't that be like literally every single, isn't that like literally the job of being a reporter, right? But to, to your point, it's actually not the job for many uh, folks in corporate media in Washington that there's an, uh, there's an implicit understanding that that, that is a taboo thing uh, to do. So, so yes, it is not easy to do the work of following the money in a media industry where that is not rewarded. Now, uh, your question about, how do you ha- how do we have anybody have leverage over a member of Congress like uh, Kirsten Cinema, uh, who may just not care at all? Maybe she's just thinking about I'm going to cash in uh, after I leave. I'm not even planning to run for re-election. Uh, I'm just going to cash in with all the lobby groups that are lobbying me to uh, kill the reconciliation bill. Uh, that look, the first answer to that question is yes. If a member of Congress does not want to run for re-election and they do not care uh, about uh, trying to get reelected, even money into the campaign. Uh, it's hard to have any leverage over them vis-a-vis corporate lobbyists who may ultimately uh, offer them a, a lucrative job on the other end. However, I would argue that there is a strategy to deal with that. And, that, and, and I think there's an argument to be made that the keeping the infrastructure bill linked to the reconciliation bill is a key part of that strategy, arguably even merging them into one bill is the way, uh, the best chance to do that, because we know that that the corporate interests want that infrastructure bill, even though they don't want the reconciliation bill. The the, the strategy of of corporate lobbyists right now, why they are so focused on delinking the two bills is because that would allow them to get the infrastructure bill they want and kill the reconciliation bill they don't want. Uh, So that would allow Kirsten Sinema to pass that infrastructure bill, as an example, 
appease those potential future employers, donors, whatever, uh, and help them also kill the reconciliation bill. But if you merge them together or if they stay linked as progressives are trying to trying to to do right now, uh, then it, it it creates more of a of a quandary for for her. Like, and by the way, not just for her, but for the people, the money interest she's potentially answering to, right? They really want that infrastructure bill. They don't want that reconciliation bill. So the way to overcome that is to exploit that problem for them. That's the whole basis of keeping the two bills linked is that the corporate forces want two things and you have to have a take it or leave it kind of bill. And so to me, that's why and and that's why Bernie Sanders is saying, listen to the he said to the House progressives, if you let this be delinked, it's going to make it really easy to kill the reconciliation bill. He's exactly right. That's why this whole thing. And I know there's probably folks who are listening to this, watching this, who like, I don't really get why these two bills have to be linked. And whether they are linked or not is almost everything. If you mm-hmm. care about, for instance, the reconciliation bill, which is basically all the good proposals for like regular human beings, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if you care about that bill, this strategy thing is not like sort of a side issue. It's the issue. Yeah. And I know like I know, for example, Bernie gets frustrated when there's all this talk about process, but yeah. nothing else matters. Nothing that's in the bill matters unless you're able to get that bill passed. (laughs) And um, to your point, he and other progressives at the beginning of this, they wanted these two things to not even be two separate bills. The logical thing would have been to have it all in the reconciliation package to start with so that there's no opportunity for this game playing of Manchin and Cinema and Josh Gottheimer and all these people. If you just had it all there in the reconciliation bill to start with, then it's like, listen, take it or leave it. If you want your piece, corporate America, that you like in the infrastructure package, you're going to have to deal with these other parts over here. So I think it was a massive tactical mistake from the Biden administration to allow these to be put into two separate bills. Now, my theory is that Biden is so obsessed with this idea of like bipartisanship and this sort of like beltway wisdom that anyone cares whether or not Lindsey Graham ultimately voted for your bill or not, that he allowed his uh, his entire agenda to be basically put on ice and potentially in danger of collapse from that one tactical error of prioritizing theoretical Washington bipartisanship over actually delivering for the American people. And what's crazy about it is, and I agree with you, but what's really crazy about it is that the lesson from the Obama administration Hmm. should have been, in my mind, you know, where he was vice president was they made all these uh, efforts to appease the Republicans and they, uh, you know, they didn't get you know, Republican support for the stimulus bill. They actually scaled it back. They didn't get Republican support for it anyway. And because they scaled it back, it didn't deliver real material, enough real material gains to people in advance of the election. And then they got shellacked in the election, right? Like that should be the lesson of the Obama administration at this exact point or roughly this point in time in 2009, right? It's the same sort of analogous time time frame. And you're right, splitting the two bills apart in the name of having one bill where you can say, look, I got a, you know, Lindsey Graham to vote for it and look at me, I'm a great bipartisan conciliator here. And then uh, I, I'm in, in theory, and I, we should go, go back to, you know, this uh, this topic in a second, but in theory, I want this other bill that's got all the stuff that I pledge that the, that the Republicans don't want and we'll pass that. And then I get two wins. I mean, it, the problem is, as you uh, insinuate, 
is that what you've essentially allowed to happen then is corporate lobbyists can focus intently on passing the bill they want, and then you unify their opposition on this other piece that they don't want. So you, you've, you've allowed them to consolidate both their support for one bill and their opposition for another bill. You've, you've effectively made it easier for them uh, to try to get what they want and kill what they don't want. Mm-hmm. And that's a humongous problem right now. Now, look, that's again why these, these progressives are trying to keep them linked. Now, I said we go back to another topic. I mean, there's, I'm starting to wonder. Now I'm just speculating here. I've been talking all about facts. I'm going to speculate for a second. I'm starting to wonder whether Biden actually wants what's happening in this way. That there's a th- school of thought out there that he doesn't mind Cinema Mansion uh, and others uh, beating the drum to effectively kill the two-track st- strategy and water down the reconciliation bill so that he can swoop in, help uh, uh, agree to help them gut the reconciliation bill, but then pass something called a reconciliation bill. You know, then it's a piece of paper with $25 of spending on it, but it's a reconciliation bill. Look, I brought everyone together and look at me. I, you know, I, I got the bipartisan bill. I got this uh, reconciliation bill. Who cares if it's gutted? But I got that. I, I, I'm the great unifier. Now, that may be a political strategy. And it's always devil in the details. What did you actually deliver? Like, was the reconciliation bill gutted or was it good? To me, the problem with a strategy like that is if you're willing to sacrifice the details, the actual meat, the protein of a reconciliation bill on climate, you know, anti-poverty, Medicare, uh, healthcare, all that stuff. If you're willing to sacrifice that, if you don't think that that matters and all you care about is getting the quote win, look, I passed a reconciliation bill. That may get you a short-term win, some short-term praise in the press, but in my view, the best chance you have to not get destroyed in a first-term, midterm election, which are tend to be bad for uh, parties in power, the best chance you have is to be able to go to voters and not just say, I got this, this win on this piece of paper that you don't really understand, is to actually say, look, we actually delivered for you in ways that you feel in your life. And that if you go out and you say, look, we passed this reconciliation bill, but it, you know, and it was gutted and you tout it as a big victory, but people don't feel like it did anything for them. In other words, if you just didn't care about the details, you didn't care if it actually delivered, all you cared about was the press release, arguably you're making your political problem worse. That's part of the problem that happened in the Obama administration was to go out and say, hey, we passed the the uh, the stimulus bill. Look how big it was. Look how great it was. And, and I think a lot of people were like, wait a minute, I'm hearing this is some huge win and I, and I don't really feel like it did anything. Like, that's not a good electoral strategy. So I think if that is the Biden strategy, I want to swoop in as a great unifier. I don't care if the reconciliation bill gets gutted. I want just want the win to say I did something. I don't think that solves your political problem. I think that arguably could make your political problems worse. The thing that's um, really terrifying me is that the talks have been going on for a while now, and apparently Mansion and Cinema are refusing to even give a counter number. So they're trying to like coax out of them. Okay, you're making this hard on us. What's your proposal? And then they hear crickets. And then the other thing is they won't even say what specifically in the bill they want to cut. And of course, there's that might also be because 
literally everything in the bill is wildly popular. You got child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family leave, paid medical leave, tuition-free community college, lower prescription, drug prices, dental hearing and vision, Medicare expansion, housing, home care, uh, higher taxes on the wealthy. Like there's all these, uh, you know, really popular things. So what do you make of that? Because when I look at that fact that they're not even giving a counter number or not saying what they would even cut, I think maybe they just do want to blow up the entire thing and don't even want like a watered down bill to pass at like, let's say for argument's sake, 1.8 trillion or something like that. Or arguably it's a negotiating strategy. If mm. you make your opponent negotiate against a phantom, if you make your your negotiating uh, partner uh, continue negotiating against effectively themselves, mm. then you get what you want without ever having to really do much of anything. Right. I mean, mm. I mean, I don't want to look, I don't, I don't like to ascribe, you know, superhuman intelligence to politicians. <laughs> I think politics is much more veep than it is house of cards. But I do think there's an argument that if you're Joe Manchin and you don't care about things or you want certain things to go away, uh, just not saying much is not necessarily a bad strategy for that. I mean, it's, I mean, it's gross. It has no morals, et cetera, et cetera. But like as just a strategy, I think it's not necessarily a bad strategy. Just play, you know, just be coy. Uh, you know, so I think that the, the question is, if that's what's going on, why are the opponents playing that game? Like if it's a game that's not good for your side, the only winning move is not to play. As the, as the movie War Games reminds us, right? Mm. Stop playing their game, pass the bill that you want, make them counter it. And we have not seen that happen yet. Now, we have not seen that happen yet for, uh, we can speculate maybe the Biden administration doesn't want it to happen. Maybe it's a, a culture of conflict aversion in the Democratic Party. I mean, you know, that is a powerful culture. The Democratic Party there's this idea that it's bad for there to be tension and sort of fighting and conflict inside the party. But ultimately, that's what this comes down to. I mean, this comes down to, are there enough Democrats who see their political formula at home and nationally as we have to deliver material gains to people right now in order to have, in order to both do the right thing, but in order to have a political chance in the midterms? Are there enough Democrats who believe that versus uh, Democrats who believe the only thing that matters is enriching our donors so that we can just buy the next election and, and try to survive the next election by who cares if we actually deliver material gains. Elections aren't even about that anymore. They're just about, you know, who can put the most ads on TV. Uh, they're a red versus blue, uh, you know, kind of tribal war. And that's the only thing that matters. And antagonizing the donors in that formula with something that may deliver material gains to people, antagonizing the donors is actually bad because that reduces our, you know, that that hurts our formula, which our formula is just the more money we can put into the campaign coffers, the easier it is for us to just buy the election, regardless of what actually what, what we're actually doing. One of the things that drives me crazy in the um, mainstream political coverage is oftentimes the motivation they'll ascribe to a mansion, but certainly to a cinema, to a Josh Gottheimer, even to people who are actually in safe blue districts. So they'll be like, oh, well, this is representing their constituents. Uh, uh, uh. Their constituents really don't want to raise taxes on the rich or on corporations. <laughs> and I think the area, and that's why they get the label centrist, even though their views are wildly out of step, not only with the Democratic Party, but with the American people writ large, and I think the issue where this is the most clear is on the prescription drug pricing reform, which is like total no-brainer. 
that Medicare should be able to negotiate with prescription drug companies. Total no-brainer, supported by 80-some percent of Americans in these districts, supported by 90 percent of Americans, supported uniformly by everyone in the Democratic base who is not a pharma lobbyist or, like, pharma executive. Kirsten Cinema and the Democrats have been running on this particular drug reform for over a decade, and yet now Cinema, in particular— turns around and uh, she's she's not for it anymore. What happened, Sirota? What happened? Well, look, I, I think that it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, that if you're not willing to talk about the money in the media conversation, then the media is going to create manufacture nonsense. Oh, you know, they're not supporting it because they're, uh, you know, their constituents don't want it or, you know, uh, or they, they, they're not, they don't support it because they are moderate in their ideology. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're supporting or not supporting these things based on whether they think uh, it fits their political formula for getting elected and reelected. So one of the things I find kind of both useful but also kind of annoying uh, is that, like, there's all these groups that put out these polls showing how po- how how popular these policies are. And it's useful, but it's also annoying. it's It's annoying in that it 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 presumes, that that's what actually matters in a negotiation, in a situation like this. Yeah. That it presumes that, like, it even matters what's popular or not popular to somebody like Josh Gottheimer, who's, you know, represents a Biden district, but gets a whole ton of money uh, from the private equity industry that doesn't want the reconciliation bill. The idea that, like, he cares about what's popular in his district, like, you show them a poll and say, hey, you know, 900% of people in your district support the reconciliation bill, but the reconciliation bill antagonizes all the people that he relies, you know, the donor class that he relies on giving him money to buy his reelection. It, it, it doesn't matter to him. So it's kind of annoying that there's this, this sort of, you know, these groups put these polls out showing that it's like the, the presumption is that that actually matters. Now, it's it's also not annoying and useful in that those polls actually do tell us in a certain way, what is actually going on. That what voters want doesn't actually, in many cases, matter at all. Or at least it's not the first and foremost thing on these lawmakers' minds, or many of these lawmakers' minds, right? Like, if you are willing to be on a committee, like these three Democrats we reported on in the Energy and Commerce Committee, and vote down at like an 80 to 90% popular issue like Medicare negotiating prescription drugs. If you're willing to do that, when we know that is a wildly popular program, what you are actually saying is, I literally do not care what my voters want. I I do not care. The thing I care about is serving the interests of the donors, the pharma donors who are bankrolling me. And guess what? It's not a coincidence That, for instance, one of the people who did this, Scott Peters, is the number one recipient of pharmaceutical money in the entire United States House, right? Like, these are not coincidences. So, in other words, the polls almost are part of a data point that tell us that essentially, and I I, I don't, you know, to to a lot of these people, nothing, like, that doesn't matter. Nothing matters. The only thing that matters is the money. So, at least we're we're learning that. And, And so, all that is to say that I hope the silver lining from any of this is 
that a lot more people are waking up to this, that a lot more people are seeing. I mean, it's such an obvious spectacle of corruption. It's an open air bazaar of corruption. Like that's what Congress has become right now. And it's all there for us to see if we just take a look at it. That's what we do again every day. But like, all you have to do is take a look at this and you can see that. And I think if this is an awakening moment to that, that there is a longer term silver lining to this. It doesn't solve the problem in the short term, but it's a longer term awakening uh, to something that we all, that I think a lot of people suspect, but can't actually put their finger on and see right in their face. It's all right in our face right now. David, one more thing on reconciliation real quick before before we move on to the Bernie campaign. I want to ask you about the Bernie campaign. Um, I'm, I'm told that it's like less than 10... House Democrats who are the problem and that it's only Manchin and Cinema who are the problem in the Senate. Um, but I also know that there were, what, eight or nine who voted against the $15 minimum wage when that came up in the last reconciliation bill. So my question to you is, is it really less than 10 House Democrats who are the problem? And is it only two in the Senate uh, who are the problem? And then what's going to happen if I put a gun to your head and said you have to make a prediction? What's going to happen with the reconciliation bill? Okay, so I think your your suspicions are probably right that Mansion and Cinema are uh, representative of potentially more senators, uh, and those those nine that you mentioned in the minimum wage vote, it's a good it's a good kind of case study because I bet mm. I bet you, and I'm just speculating here, but I bet you like Carper, Coons mm. from Delaware, Warner. Uh, I bet you uh, Warner. Bob Menendez on the on the prescription drug stuff. He's from New Jersey. He's been a known close ally of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I am sure that there are a certain number of senators who don't want to stand up and do exactly what Manchin and Cinema are doing publicly, but don't mind at minimum that this is what Manchin and Cinema are doing. I mean, you had Mar- you had Tim Kaine yesterday suggest that maybe we should uh, means test uh, oh. community college. Right. Like and and that means testing talking point sounds like what Joe Manchin would say. So all these little signals that like there are there may be more. Now, ultimately, the question may become of those ones that don't mind what Manchin and cinema are doing when push comes to shove. Would they actually vote that way? That's the real question. That's the question that hasn't yet really fully been tested. So if you ask me what's going to happen on the reconciliation bill, uh, I don't like to make predictions. But I will tell you, I, I will say a few things about how I think uh, this may play out. One, uh, we're talking today uh, on a day where Pelosi is, at least for, at this very moment, planning to bring the standalone infrastructure bill up for a vote, which, which if it passes, would delink, as we discussed, delink the two bills, which would probably be uh, a serious blow uh, to to a real reconciliation bill. I mean, not a gutted, maybe it would get gutted, but the point is that it would delink the bill. Whatever happens in the House. My view would be that Nancy Pelosi is not going to be surprised. So whatever happens, she either didn't care that it happened or knew it was going to happen. And it's part of some larger strategy that she has in her mind that Mm. she is known to be. I've worked in the House. She is known to be somebody who does not bring things to the floor unless she knows the outcome, which, Mm. by the way, that's not even a criticism of her. Right. Like, I mean, that's that's how House speakers often are. Right. I mean, that's that's, you know, so. My point is, is that if the if the vote goes down, if the infrastructure bill gets voted down by a wide margin and Pelosi brought it to to the floor, she knew that was going to happen. That's part of some strategy. If Mm. if the vote passes and progressives vote enough, progressives vote against it, 
then pull and but some Republicans peel off, then Pelosi probably knew that was going to happen. And that's part of a strategy or at minimum, she didn't care. Now, why would she want the bill to be voted down? One argument would be she wants the vote, the bill to be voted down or doesn't mind it being voted down. She can say to the corporate Democrats, hey, I gave you the vote you wanted. She can say to the to the progressive Democrats, hey, you know, you voted your conscience and, you know, I didn't I didn't come at you for that. And I let the process play out. And so I because remember, she serves. She is an elected representative of all those representatives. She's got to answer to those 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 constituencies. Right. So maybe she just wants to say, look, I did what you asked me to do. And here's where we are now. Maybe she wants the bill killed. Or, or she doesn't mind it being voted down because she believes that does strengthen the hand of all the Democrats other than the uh, holdouts. Eight, yeah, the, the holdout, holdouts. you know, the eight, right. And that that actually strengthens the process. Or maybe she doesn't mind it being voted down because then she thinks, listen, it got voted down. That increases the 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 panic that if we don't pass something. Biden's entire presidency is going to go down. That, in other words, mm. voting it down actually strengthens the argument that we got a real crisis here. We got to gut the reconciliation bill ASAP. That she doesn't mind the pressure ratcheting up. The and ultimately, if the bill is voted down today, uh, the pressure will ratchet up, and then it will be a question of how can that pressure then be driven into the good thing, the good outcome, rather than the bad outcome. The panic can be driven into. We have to pass the three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill. We have to keep them linked. Uh, three and a half trillion is already a compromise. Uh, we have to pass it ASAP or Biden's presidency is doomed. Or it can be driven into we have to gut the reconciliation bill uh, down to nothing uh, to get something passed or Biden's presidency is doomed. And the challenge is going to be to have the argument narrative and conversation be about the former for a good outcome rather than the latter. Yeah. David, how do you not become just sort of like totally nihilistic, given <laughs> what you've seen in Washington, on Capitol Hill, in political campaigns, doing this reporting and really exposing, as you said earlier, how little the will of the people actually matters um, to a lot of these stakeholders in Washington? Like what keeps you from just going down the path of total nihilism? Uh, well, I mean, I will, uh, I will admit that like on my darkest moments, I, you know, have, you go down thoughts. that path. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, you know, uh, I get depressed. I get de demoralized like, like anybody else who pays attention to this and takes, you know, actually, you know, believes in, you know, trying to do good things that help, you know, society. Right. I mean, it's, it's demoralized, but I also, you know, like I have children, uh, I have a community that I love. Um, I, you know, I myself don't want to, for instance, die in a fire tornado. Right. So I'd like the climate <laughs> crisis to be uh, dealt with. Right. So like I'm sort of like if if you're if you're a, a citizen in the world and, and, you know, care about some basic things, then this system is rotted. It's terrible. It needs to be fixed. Uh, and you've got to participate in fixing it. Uh, you know, uh, there's an old you know, a, a line from a my religious tradition, which says, you know, you're not obligated to complete the work, but you you also can't walk away from the work. Uh, I'm paraphrasing mm. here, but like, you know, like you're you're we're not going to complete all you know the work of fixing the world, but you can't also just walk away from it. So, you know, like this is the world we live in. Like we have to try, and I think that like 
yes, I've had moments where I'm like, you know what, I'm I'm out, like I'm done. I I, I hate this. I can't look at it every day. I like it's it's so nauseating. It's so pointless. And I have those days. And you know, like. And by the way, I don't begrudge people who say, look, I, I just I can't focus on this anymore. It's just too, it's too depressing. I'm not saying like those people are bad. I get that impulse. But I also think like and by the way, I also think like just saying, oh, you know, they're all corrupt. You know, nothing good can possibly happen. And anybody who's trying to work in that system, you must be corrupt or at least stupid by trying to fix things because the whole system is corrupt. You know, sort of the black pill idea. Like I just, you yeah. know, there's a blue pill, the red pill and the black. Like I reject that, too. Like you're not smarter by just walking away. Like you're not better than people uh, by walking away. And by the way, you're not better than people by saying, you know, um, anybody who's ever voted for a Democrat is supporting the duopoly. Like, here's the thing, the Democratic Party is super corrupt, but in the short term, right, in the context, for instance, of the reconciliation bill, all you have right now is a Democratic Party and a Republican Party in Congress. Like. Like you've got to try to get like there's a climate crisis happening. It's a ticking time bomb. Like you you have to try to get this horrible, corrupt system to to try to do the right thing, stipulating that it is horrible. It's corrupt. The game is rigged. All of that stuff is stipulated. But like walking away from it or or just sort of rolling your eyes and saying anybody who's even trying to participate in it is stupid, dumb and or complicit. Like I just reject that. Like there's too much at stake. It doesn't mean don't hold, you know, progressives accountable, right? Like the squad, the progressive members of Congress, like they need to be held accountable to their promises to hold out. The corporate Democrats need to be held accountable. But the idea of just rolling your eyes and being like, you know, they're all corrupt. Anybody trying to do any of that is, is you know, fortifying the evil duopoly. Like, no, there's the other the, the other way to look at it is like, yes, the duopoly is pathetic and terrible and corrupt, but it's like what we have in the short term, right in the here and now. We're on a scientific environmental ticking time bomb uh, time scale here. And like we've got to do anything that we can to make the system respond. Yeah, I mean, to your point, I love everything you said there, because the people who take that position, the, they're all corrupt and they just check out of the system. To me, that strikes me as a war on nuance and like just really sloppy thinking, because in my opinion, the fact of the matter is most of them are corrupt. The overwhelming majority of them are corrupt, but that doesn't mean that they're all corrupt. That certainly doesn't mean they're all the same. And that definitely doesn't mean that you don't even have instances of somebody who is corrupt, who might happen to do the right thing every now and then. For example, Joe Biden getting out of Afghanistan, pulling all the troops out of Afghanistan. So like you said, there's just- I'm so uh, too glad you say that. Let me just, can I just say, I'm so glad you said that because here's the underneath so much of this is the the- the ESPNization, as I've called it, the ESPNization of politics, to see it as a team sport and to see uh, the the idols that we were, you know, politicians are idols. They're either good or they're bad. Uh, they're uh, always good people or bad people. But actually what, what they should be looked at, they're chess pieces on a chessboard. They're machine inputs into a machine. They're essentially they're 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 an input into an apparatus. And the question is, what outcome do you want from the apparatus? You know, like I know some politicians. I you know, I'm, I, I'm friendly with with some of them, like, you know, that I've you know, that I've known for years and years. Right. Like, but ultimately, like 
I understand that in their job, they're a machine input. I, you know, I or we or society needs them, that the system that they're in to produce an outcome, you know, it, to put it in the, you know, Jerry Maguire, it's not show friends, it's show business that ultimately you can be somebody can, you can be friendly with or think they're a nice person. But like when it comes time to having them do their job to get an, uh, to get an outcome that we need to, you know, for instance, survive the climate crisis, it doesn't matter if they're nice or friendly or whatever. And I think the problem is, is that we've been, there's so much of a propaganda system designed to make you think that, oh, you know, that person must be a good person. That person must be a bad person. And therefore I'm with the good person, even when they're doing bad and I'm against the bad person when they're doing good. And and that confuses what it should really be about is I don't care if they're good or bad people. Like, I don't care if Joe Biden's a nice guy or a terrible guy. Like, I don't care about any of that. The only thing I care about is like, you know, being able to afford health care, uh, having my community and the world survive the climate crisis. And I don't care if Joe Biden's not nice, nice. I don't care. If Joe Manchin's a great guy, a terrible guy. All I care about is the outcome. And I think that is the way we need to look at politics, not as a some sort of sporting event, not as some sort of, you know, you know, you're rooting for the good guys or the bad guys. It's a machine that we need outcomes from. How do we tune the machine? How do we make sure the inputs into the machine are delivering those outcomes that benefit the public and not the donor class only? Yeah. And, and the biggest problem with the political nihilism pill, in my opinion, is that ultimately it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you sit on the sidelines and you wait to say, I told you so. Yes. You wait for yes. everything to fall apart. And they're like, see, putting in any effort was stupid from the beginning. And it's yes. not. The effort is virtuous in and of itself, regardless of the outcome. But anyway, yes. I digress from that. I want to ask you a question about the Bernie campaign. In yes. your opinion, what was the biggest failure of the Bernie campaign where perhaps if they did stuff differently, they could have won? Well, let me preface it by saying I think that the the major reason Joe Biden won uh, was a boring reason. And lots of people don't didn't write about it or care about it because it's so boring. It's not even actually interesting, which is to say that uh, immediate past vice presidents almost never lose the nominations of their parties when they seek it. That's not a cop out. It's just a truth. I mean, it is just a truth. Uh, party voters become familiar with and comfortable with uh, their immediate past or current vice presidents. Uh, and there is almost no historical precedent for a uh, immediate past vice president to lose the nomination. That's not to say that running the campaign was a was a fool's errand. It wasn't. I think Joe Biden was beatable. But I think that was a huge factor that nobody likes to talk about because it's just boring, right? I mean, it, arguably, it, it's it's it is interesting in that it says something about sort of voters and just like, oh, I know that guy. I'm a vote for him, and that, I'm, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not even thinking beyond that. Yeah. But so so I think that's a big factor. Now, then the question is, well, what in 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 the Bernie Sanders campaign's control? Because you can't control that. What inside in our in the campaign's control could we have done better? Uh, and I think uh, now, granted, you should know, I, you know, I, I worked in communications. So, like, I, I'm probably um, prioritizing that or, or adding weight to that. And maybe maybe it's but but from that perspective, I think there was not a contrast drawn with Joe Biden that needed to be drawn on a daily basis in a sharp enough way every single day. Uh, and I think that that was for a, a lot of reasons. I think that there has been an, an establishment serving theory 
and culture that has been created in recent years to say that when Democrats argue, fight, battle with each other, it's somehow bad and destructive. And a lot of voters, we were living in an age where voter, a lot of voters, not all voters, but a lot of voters have taken on the, the viewpoints of pundits, uh, election horse race analysts, as opposed to just voting for their interests. Oh, uh, you know, you know, I'm not saying the past was a golden age, but like a, a better political system is one where you say, I want health care. I'm voting for the candidate who's going to deliver health care to me. Right. But now we've got a lot of voters who are like, well, I may want health care. And that guy may be pushing the best health care plan, but I'm keeping told on TV that if he pushes that, that'll hurt the Democrats chance to win the election. And that will. And so it's sort of the punditification of the voter. Has, is a problem, and then you meld that with this idea that if the Democrats fight with each other in a primary, it's bad. That that manufactured idea became very prominent in the Democratic primary in 2020. That there was this whole, oh, you're attacking this candidate. How, how did, like, you would, you know, a candidate would mention something about another candidate. Totally, you voted this way or that way, and oh my God. The, 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 the conversation was about whether it was too negative to bring it up rather than the actual substance of what was being talked about because of this culture. Uh, and what was really crazy to me in, in the race, although I wasn't surprised by any of this, is that it's ahistorical, right? Like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton in 2008, I mean, that was a knockdown drag out primary that did not weaken Barack Obama as a general election nominee, right? Like the, the history of the Democratic Party and its primaries are the candidates fighting with each other. And ultimately, you know, Bill Clinton, the 1992 primary, I mean, it was like it's a brutal primary, right? But there's this new culture that somehow that friction is bad. And so I think that existed so that anytime a contrast, even a mild contrast was made, it became the contrast itself was scandalized. And I think in a sense that that created a kind of intimidating disincentive uh, for us uh, to not do that contrast. Now, I want to say I was a big proponent the entire time of contrasting uh, clearly and sharply with Biden every single day. And, you know, I mean, every campaign has pushes and pulls and internal debates. Uh, and I was on the side of we need to be going at Biden every single day, not not in like a like a mudslinging way, but in like a you voted for the Iraq war and you sided with the with the credit card companies uh, on bankruptcy, like legitimate you know, of stuff of, of like corruption. And, you know, anytime it was brought up, uh, the media scandalized it like, oh, you know, Bernie's going negative. And I think that that ended up kind of getting into the head of the, the sort of the campaign brain trust that like, you know, it's too dangerous or scary to draw that kind of contrast. And I frankly think that Bernie uh, himself, um, you know, uh, is not he? He doesn't like to see himself as a quote negative politician. So I think that potentially <clears throat> affected him. Uh, I think he has some level of you know sort of personal affinity uh, for Joe Biden, and Joe Biden was one of the few senators who actually uh, uh, not was just nice to him, but actually included him in the legislative process during the uh, when Biden was in the Senate. And when you know, I mean, I don't think that Bernie agrees with Biden on everything and, and all that. So I'm not saying like Bernie was like corrupt or anything. I'm just saying, bottom line that the contrast was not drawn every single day in a sharp way, in the way that, that candidates who tend to win Democratic primaries, who aren't sitting vice presidents, uh, end up, uh, are successful, right? Like, if you're the sitting vice president uh, or the immediate past vice president, you can run the Rose Garden strategy. 
But if you're the challenger, you have got to draw the contrast every day. You've got to fight through uh, the the media narrative, the, oh, you're going negative. Like, you've got to fight through all that. You've got to rip the nomination as a challenger away from the establishment. And that's not what happened. Yeah. You know, David, um, this kind of segues into a project that you have coming up, which is a new podcast with Alex Gibney, where you track the financial crisis and how it led us to this political moment of chaos and despair and, you know, these— Trump winning, too. Yeah, Trump winning and these waves of everybody's looking, let's throw this one out and let's get the new one in and let's throw Trump the human Molotov cocktail at the (laughs) whole thing. Um, so let's zoom out to that level and just give us a little preview of that project, which I think is really important and really undersold because a lot of mainstream press wants to paint Donald Trump as this singular figure, this singular evil that just came out of nowhere and who could have seen it and, you know, and okay, now that he's gone, we're all good to go again. Um, but the truth is that he's a symptom of a much deeper rot and much deeper problems. Talk to us a little bit about some of the connections that you see there. Sure. So, I, and I hope you'll have me back to talk about the project when it's out. It's called Absolutely. Meltdown. It's coming out at the, at the end of, at the, uh, at the end of October. Uh, and it's basically, it takes a look at how the financial crisis and not just the crisis, but as importantly, the response to the financial crisis, the yeah. democratic response to the financial crisis, the weak response the Wall Street complicit response created the perfect conditions for somebody like an opportunist like Donald Trump to take advantage of. That Donald Trump is not a singularly anomalous, uh, you know, political mastermind. He uh, is an opportunist who took advantage of a backlash set of conditions, a backlash set of conditions uh, that were created by decisions made by uh, a very popular new president and a uh, large Democratic majority Congress, Uh, that those decisions were made. uh, The decisions that were made did not provide the necessary material gains and rescue to regular people. uh, And that created the conditions. It didn't create Donald Trump, but it created optimal conditions for things like the Tea Party, uh, and things like uh, uh, you know Donald Trump to win the election. Uh, and I think it's such an important um, point, and I'm so glad it's coming out now. I mean, it's a 16-month project of reporting this, which is that for some reason, it doesn't seem that that message or that lesson has really fully been understood, even though it should be such an obvious lesson, which is to say that if there's a moment of crisis Uh, It's going to be a difficult political moment for any party that's in power to to retain power because people are mad and it becomes a very volatile situation. But the best chance that you have uh, to retain political power and prevent people like Donald Trump from seizing power, opportunists, is to actually focus only every single day on delivering real material gains to regular people because Come the next election, you're going to be asked, did you improve people's lives? And I think the voters in 2010, for instance, the answer was no, that the top down bailouts uh, to the banks that were billed as a great success, people didn't feel like it helped them. 
Now, you can definitely argue, and I would argue, that, that the fact of that anger and backlash ultimately helping the Republicans, who clearly didn't want to help real people, who clearly on the side of the Cokes and the billionaires and Wall Street and the like, is that's a sad situation. Like it's sort of the anger benefited others, another set of people who are arguably even worse, right? But that's the nature of politics, which is to say that when, if you give, if people voted for change and they don't get change, and they definitely voted for change in the hope and change election of 20, 2008, and they don't feel like they're getting change, they feel like they're getting more of the same, then they're gonna vote for change again. And that is the, the uh, such an important message right now to bring it all the way back to the reconciliation bill. People voted to change governments from Donald Trump. It was a very narrow election. If you don't deliver change, you run the risk of people voting for another kind of change again, arguably a worse Donald Trump. And a final thing I will say on this is, um, you know, I'm kind of mystified that uh, uh, that, you know, Donald Trump winning in 2016 is sort of seen as this anomalous moment and all this thing. But it really should be it really should be looked at as like the other way around. Like, how do you lose an election to Donald Trump? Right. A wildly not popular guy <laughs> doesn't have like, I mean, granted, I guess you could argue he's got some kind of special charisma, but like a guy who's clearly ridiculous, who's clearly dangerous, uh, he, he hasn't run for office before, like losing to him first and foremost should be like a, wow, we must, like, what did we do wrong? Like, that's the first question, right? It's not like you lost to like, I don't know, like. Uh, some version of Ronald Reagan, like some amazingly talented politician who you, who you disagree with or whatever, but like it has a clear record of just like winning, like being just a beloved politician or whatever. Like you lost to Donald Trump. The first question you should ask is what did we do wrong? We must have systemically blew this in such an epic way. And instead it's seen as like, oh, it was like some anomaly who took advantage of things and, you know, and, and, and he did take advantage of these things. And, and to be clear, Let's remember there are about 200 plus counties that flipped from Obama to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. The first question you should be asking is not, the first thing you should be saying is not, you know, uh, Donald Trump is, you know, this or that. The first thing you should be saying is, how did we lose those 200? What did we do wrong? Well, obviously, yeah. they did nothing wrong. It was the Russian <laughs> Facebook memes. I think we it all was, know that. It's racism, sexism, the Russians, Jim Comey, the Green Party. There's, the number of <laughs> there's a whole list of stuff that you go to <laughs> before you say, what, did, what, did I do something? Clinton wasn't an yeah. amazing candidate. I mean, to no, your point. Go to, I mean, she didn't go to Wisconsin, right? I mean, like, yeah, I know that's, that's a, right. But, like, how is that, like, not, like, that, that Although, to be like fair, once, to be fair. Yeah. Biden seems to win places he doesn't go. <laughs> well, also, Which to is be kind fair, of funny. I think she may have made things worse if she went to Wisconsin. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> that's, but, a fair, that, that, that's a fair that's To, a fair to point. your point. I, my, yeah, my only point is like the fact that that those lessons have not been explored clearly yeah. even now when, I mean, it's obvious though they have not been fully explored, although I, I do think there's been some learning, but it hasn't been fully explored is reflected by the fact that they're still flirting around with you know, cutting back on their own version of, of like today's version of the stimulus, right? Like that's right. You yeah. could look at the last, if you learn the lesson, you'd be like, look, we, we had this moment to pass this, like a new, new deal. If you will, we kind of blew it. That created backlash conditions. And then we got shellacked in the election. Okay. We've learned those. Instead, we're like, 
maybe we should cut back our agenda now. Uh, we just, you know, we're back in power. Maybe we should cut back our agenda. Maybe that, like, we're just going to, like, that's the definition. I've said that, you know, I mean, the definition of Democratic Party insanity is shitting the bed over and over and over again, and then wondering why voters are, are mad that the bed has been shat, right? Yeah. Like, 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 that's the definition of insanity. Yeah, I mean, to your point, anti-establishment rage can be channeled to the right or the left. And yes. that that's what we saw with Trump, where they take that anti-establishment rage, you sprinkle in a little bit of fake populism, and you hit them with some scapegoating and xenophobia, and people went in that direction, and the Democrats needed to provide the counter-response of, it's not about, it's not about brown people, uh, it's about the outsourcing, it's about the owner class, it's about the corruption, it's about the top 1%, and we're going to fix your problems, they're just providing a scapegoat. And, you know, to your point, unfortunately, Hillary Clinton was the one who was supposed to try to make that counter argument, which is like the worst person to deliver it. Um, <laughs> she but, like, actually, I'm the problem. Right, I'm right? the problem. <laughs> Vote for me. Um, but David, I, I want to wrap up by uh, talking about, I think this is probably fair to say your newest project or one of your newest projects, which is the uh, the movie that you randomly <laughs> were involved in. And did you produce it or direct it or co-wrote both? it? Co-wrote it? So you I, co-wrote I, it. Well, I... In fairness, to be clear, these credits all mean something in Hollywood, which I, I'm not fully familiar with, but I basically developed with Adam McKay the overall story. He wrote the script. He directed it. And I co-produced this movie. Uh, it's called Don't Look Up. That's OK. First of all, that is literally the most random thing I've ever heard in my life. I remember the day I learned that you you did that and you said, I saw something about like Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm like. David Sirota and Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, what are we talking about here? And then I saw the trailer. and I'm like, oh. Oh, it's real. It's okay, real that's thing. interesting. I had a little bit of a heads it's up, a so thing. I wasn't quite right. as caught off guard. So anyway, yes. I, I want to actually show everybody the trailer and then we'll react to it. So run that, guys. Stressing me out. This will affect the entire planet. I know, but it's like so stressful. Can I get that one more ice water? I'll get two more glasses of white wine, and I don't need the judgy face. There's a comet headed directly towards Earth. Do you know how many the world is ending meetings we've had over the last two years? Drought, famine, hole in the ozone is so boring. Okay, that that looks incredible. It first really, of all, yeah. It Second really of all, tell tell everybody about this. I'm guessing there's a metaphor there for climate change. Well, all I'll say is this. Uh, you know, it's it started out as kind of a metaphor for climate change. Um, you know, but actually, it it has become. I mean, some people now, oh, maybe it's a metaphor for you know the pandemic and the vaccine and and all that. But actually, what it really is, it, it goes to something much deeper, which is that. Um, do we have an ability as a society to process scientific information or just basic facts and respond to those facts? Or have we created such a sort of entertainment, ESPNized political culture 
where everything is a fodder for the culture war, that we actually can't even uh, respond uh, pragmatically uh, to uh, facts and emergencies. And that's what this movie really explores. Now, it, 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 what I think people will find without giving away anything about it is it is a hilarious movie. I mean, it is really funny. Uh, but it is also a really serious movie as well. And it has been a really incredible experience to work with Adam McKay, who folks should know, you know, he did The Big Short. He did Vice. This is a person who is a master of from scene to scene. You are laughing and then, you know, if not crying, you're feeling sick. Right. Like he is a master of both kind of m making fun of or satirizing things that are sort of darkly hilarious, but also delivering uh, a, a really important set of messages and, and not just delivering messages, but exploring really uh, important things. And I think this, this point about can we even um, process basic facts, like climate's one example of many, but just to use that, like we know we face a climate crisis. The science is clear. We know what we need to do to deal with the climate crisis. Why can't we get our political system, our media uh, discourse to focus on doing what we know we can do and need to do? Why can't we? And how do we unbreak what is broken there? And I would argue that the first way to unbreak it, to fix it, is to recognize what is broken. If we, if something like climate science becomes uh, just another fodder for the red versus blue uh, political and culture war, as opposed to something that we know we need to deal with, we we have to fix uh, that. Uh, and again, uh, to bring it all the way back to the reconciliation bill and the debate that we're, uh, right now, like the reconciliation bill includes things. The argument is over. Right. Like we know we need to do these things. This is not an argument anymore. Like Americans should not be paying the highest prices for prescription drugs in the world, prescription drugs that we as taxpayers funded through the NIH. Uh, we know we need to respond to the climate crisis in a very serious way or lots of people are going to die. We know I can go through the list. We know we need to do this bill. How is it that we're still having an argument, not about what exactly should be in the bill, but we're having an argument about whether to even do it. Like right. that suggests that we're, we're, we're still not able to process the things that are basic facts that should be stipulated. And we have to fix that problem. One of the things that's intellectually interesting to me about the film is um, part of the trouble, part of the challenge with the climate crisis is it's slow. Right. Yeah. It's not frog and boiling water. It's slow and there's not like so you don't have that galvanizing like, oh, my God, it's going to hit the earth tomorrow. And it, there also isn't like one villain that you can point to that can galvanize people as well. And so what I find interesting about the film is that you do have this one clear present danger that's coming and you still can't get people to care about it or pay attention to it. And so you start to ask yourself the question like, oh, is the fact that we can't respond to climate change, is it actually just because it's slow moving and that's difficult to, you know, get people to wrap their heads around? Or are we actually so far gone that even if it was like, no, guys, it's hitting the planet, it's happening next week, here's mm -hmm. the scientists that say that, that you'd still have like Tom Cotton 
on the floor of the Senate being like, these woke scientists yeah. wanting us to freak out or whatever. I mean, I, and I genuinely don't know the answer oh, to that. Oh, I know that. the answers. Whether, Cotton would say that. Tom Cotton would say that. Right. And and that then you'd have half the country that'd be like, this is wait, fake wait, news. Crystal, this is just Crystal. these like woke university Ivy League types who care about this. But, but here's the thing. The COVID crisis wasn't slow moving. Mm, right. Was, That's it was, right. It was really fast. <laughs> That's right. right. I mean, it wasn't a comet, but it was like, I mean, it killed a lot of people. Right. Like, and, and, we, and, we, and, and we still killing a lot of people. Yeah. It's still killing. And we saw it coming. Right. And it was very quickly politicized into, you know, and 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 again, I, I want to be clear. I'm not making a fault like a false equivalency here. Right. Like, oh, you know, it was politicized by like uh, there's this tendency to be like, oh, you know, when it comes to climate or the pandemic. Oh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the left and the right, you know, both politicized. Like, no, no. Like it was mostly polit- these things are mostly politicized. I don't even like using sides, but like mostly politicized by co- essentially corporate uh, and conservative forces in our politics, mani- you know, kind of manipulating and creating a propaganda bubble to serve their interests, whether it's their profit interests, uh, you know, the oil companies and the like, or when it comes to the climate, or whether it serves, I mean, frankly, the media industry's interest. I mean, that, right. that's another part of this, which is like the media, the corporate media thrives on sort of conflict over things even that shouldn't be a source of conflict. Like the idea that climate science is just fodder for media conflict right. is it should be the other way around. Like, but, but the media, the corporate media industry is predicated on commodifying conflict. So anything that is a piece of data or a fact that shouldn't be a source of conflict, it it can be turned into a commodity inside of a conflict based industry. Mm. And that is a huge problem. Yeah. I mean, when I was at MSNBC, I was told climate change doesn't rate. Climate change doesn't rate. Wow. So, I mean, that tells you everything about their incentives. And so, yeah, the only way then they can get it to rate is by making it into like, well, this side says this or that side says that. And let's have a like some sort of culture war battle around it. But just the facts and the science of it isn't profitable for us. So we're not going to cover it. Although what they're actually saying there, if I, I just interject, I, I, when I hear something like that, what I hear is we don't have the, we don't have the talent or interest to, to make turn it interesting, the world's most compelling story right, into yep. a companion, and that, that's act, and that's pathetic. Like that, that is a lack of just sort of vision, uh, and not only va- a lack of values. It's obviously a lack of values. I mean, it's amoral, right? I mean, it, arguably immoral, right? But on top of that, it's like we don't even know how to be creative about these things. And 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 just to go back to what I said about Adam McKay, I mean, the amazing thing about Adam McKay. Uh, really, uh, and I'm not just saying this because 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 I love the guy and he's he's a friend, but like really, if you look at his work, he's a guy who is always pushing himself uh, uh, on projects to use that creativity uh, in a values-based but also entertaining way. Now, I will add one last thing about about this movie, and uh, you know, I I am concerned a little bit, even though it's a fantastic movie. I hope ever it's really hilarious, but I'm a little worried that the movie will have some obstacles uh, in the system 
the problematic system that it diagnoses. In other words, you're putting the movie is a mirror uh, is a hilarious mirror on society, but there's there's a little bit of like I wonder if if the system that it's diagnosing and the problems that it's diagnosing will uh, sort of be thrown back at the at the movie itself. Like, can a system that entertains itself to death uh, and can't deal with serious issues? Can it basically undermine, you know, a, a very, very, very good movie uh, about that system itself? Right. It's it's a little bit of like a, you know, a funhouse mirror effect. And and that's what I'm going to be very interested to see uh, how the movie is is received sort of inside of that problematic system that we've just discussed. What was it like working in Hollywood instead of working in I mean, technically you're in Colorado, but you know what I mean, instead of working in D.C. or in the Beltway? And why did you think it was important to uh, make sort of more of a cultural statement than the normal, you know, your reporting and your journalism and all of that, which is obviously extraordinarily important as well? Well, I you know, the. I've written three books. My third book was called Back to Our Future, which was fundamentally about how uh, popular culture um, is a very powerful way to deliver political messages in ways that that the audience doesn't necessarily see as political. Uh, And it was about the 1980s in particular, how 1980s pop culture was infused with a lot of very ideological and political messages. Uh, mm. And they were particularly powerful because when you're watching a cultural, a pop cultural product, your political filter is down. Like when you watch a, a TV ad for a politician, you're like, this is a political ad. I'm going to take it as a political ad. If you're watching a sitcom, you're like, this isn't political. It just says just a sitcom, even though you may be getting political messages. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but you know, one of the examples people love from that book was, you know, like the A-team, for instance. If you think about what the A-team is actually saying, right, the A-team is, you know, private for-profit mercenaries are the only thing that can solve problems in society. The government is the problem. The government is actually the enemy, all right? I mean, there's Ghostbusters, right? Who's the enemy in Ghostbusters? It's the EPA. The private mercenaries are the ones who are there to save the day. So all of that is to say that clearly pop culture affects the way we look at our world and our politics. And so I have always been interested in ways uh, not to like, like, because the movie doesn't use pop culture to like subversively send a message. It 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 uses sort of an entertaining, hilarious movie to raise really serious issues, and that is what art is supposed to do, right? Art, pop culture, whatever you want to call it. And so I think I, I think it's important for. I don't think there's a world of pop culture and then a world of politics. I don't think it's that simple. Uh, and I don't think that uh, engaging in pop, you know, the pop culture world is a sellout of serious political work. We, we, that's not the way people live their lives. That's not the way the world really works. So, so what I think is, is that I, I think that like somebody like Adam McKay and there are others who are trying to... Uh, do uh, produce entertaining popular culture uh, that is fun and and enjoyable to watch, but also has values baked in. I think that is a very, very important uh, kind of work. Uh, I think it's the work we saw people like Norman Lear do uh, mm-hmm. back in the uh, in the 1970s. I think it is hugely important, hugely underappreciated, uh, and that, you know, like, again, you're, that, that I go back to that 
that quote that I said, uh, you know, the, from my religious tradition, you're not obligated to complete the work, but you also, you know, can't just walk away from the work. And I think people, and by the way, I think this extends to everything. People in all walks of life, whether you're working in pop culture, whether you're working in a school, whether you're, it's not to say like indoctrinate people. It's just to say, make your work values based. And I think that like this movie is a hilarious movie. You could watch it and it could just be the most entertaining thing you like. You don't even think about these things. But 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 the thing is, you will see it is a values-based uh, uh, project. And that's, the, the I think, the obligation of, of, of everyone to try to infuse their work with some values. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Um, guys, go subscribe to The Daily Poster if you're able. Um, I think Kyle is absolutely right. Your work there is essential. Obviously, we both rely on it heavily. Um, it, it should be on CNN and CNBC yeah. and Fox News and MSNBC, but their whole point is to obfuscate and not connect the dots that you, sir, Their whole point the is to not ask those uncomfortable questions as you were discussing earlier. Can't wait to see the film. Can't wait to watch the po- to listen to the podcast and uh, have you back to talk about that. Great to have you. Great to see you, David. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. And thank you, I should add, thank you for your work. Uh, and I'm not just saying that. I really mean it. I, I, I really, really appreciate the work that you do. It is not easy to start something from scratch. Uh, and there's a lot of folks that will be out there when you start something from scratch saying, oh, you know, they'll roll your eyes and all this and that. It's the work that needs to be done. Uh, it is really important. So thank you for your work as well. So that was David Sirota. Um, the film looks genuinely good. It yeah. looks actually really funny. And obviously the cast is incredible. I still don't understand how he wound up in that situation. So he's known Adam for a while. And so he was he mentioned to me that he was working on this project a while back. So I know this has been in and the works. Adam's the what? Adam McKay. So he's it's, you know, his film. He wrote it with okay. David. So it's like a big Hollywood dude that he happens to know. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And who's a lefty and gotcha. Has good values and all that stuff. So um what's interesting to me is that he's able to operate on all these kind of different levels at once. So he's in the extreme weeds with us on the day-to-day mm-hmm. congressional process um, and reconciliation through his journalism with Daily Poster. He's doing this higher level look at like, how did we end up with Donald Trump and what does that all look like through his podcast? And then he's also doing this sort of like cultural statement, super high level yeah. with the film, which is just impressive to be able to juggle all those balls at once. Yeah, I mean, jack of all trades. Uh, I'm the opposite. I'm more of a one-trick pony who I have other hobbies I enjoy outside of politics, but in terms of what I do seriously, I'm a one-trick pony. So he was giving way too much credit at the end there when he was like, thank you guys. Yes. I mean, you do a phenomenal job, but I'm... Stop. Watch my show and I make Stop. fart noises on every show. <laughs> like it's... No, but I know that... I'm just a commentator. He's a hard journalist. You know what I mean? Yeah, but there's, I mean, there's a role for it. Let me defend our honor. No, there's definitely, I'm not saying there's not a role for it, and I'm not saying it's not important, but I'm just saying it's not as serious. Nor do I want to be viewed as serious. I'm not as serious. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just not. I think there's a role for people who are surfacing the stories and then people who are able to contextualize that and make it make sense to paint paint the broader picture and put it into that bigger context. And that's what I think you do very well for people. Help take the stories and then make sense of them with what's going on. That's true. I do just feel like in any world that made sense, um, he would be gigantic. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like he would be huge. 
Yeah. Because everything, I mean, you know, I don't know if there's anybody else in the field where when they release something, I know it's going to be fire. I yeah. know it's going to be important. I know it's like, you know, this Senator asshole Schmageggin just took 500000 <laughs> from, you know, Dusseldorf Industries and he's passing a bill to suck off Dusseldorf Industries. Yeah. It got weird, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you get Somehow the point. at the end, we always end up in a weird place. Um, I also thought it was interesting him explaining the reason why the media does not pick up those stories because they don't want it to be uncomfortable between their quote-unquote journalists and whatever politician it is that they're covering. And especially with media being, you know, increasingly partisan, if you're MSNBC, you may say those things about the Republicans, right? You're going to surface, you might surface the money that they're taking and the way that's impacting their votes, but you're not going to say that or ask those questions of the Democrats. Why? Because you want to be able to invite them back on your show. You might have social relationships with them. You want them to feed you little bits of information. So the way that you succeed and the way you excel, the way you get, you know, that next step on the career ladder or whatever it is, is by not asking uncomfortable questions of politicians and pointing to their real motives and what's really going on there. And uh, that's how you end up with this farcical situation and them trying to spin us on, oh, you know, the reason that Kirsten Cinema's doing this is just, it's just her ideology or she's responding to her constituents when that is just patently, absurdly false. Well, the real trick is in the hiring process. What they do is at all these big corporations is that generally speaking, they think they've vetted everybody sufficiently where they're not going to rock the boat too much. The, the, you know, they bring people into these companies who are well-educated, but well-educated in the traditional sense, had all the proper lines of indoctrination mm -hmm. all the way through. And then we know you're not going to rock the boat too much. It's not like Wolf Blitzer was saying controversial things in his interview. You know what I mean? And so then they feel relatively safe and relatively comfortable. They could put them on air. Uh, they know that they're going to ask questions along the lines of, and he did this once with Rand Paul, when Rand Paul said, like, we shouldn't be arming Saudi Arabia as they committed genocide in Yemen. Wolf Blitzer's response was, what about the jobs for the defense companies? <laughs> and that's the kind of person that they want on air. They and, and to your point, then you have the partisan angle as well. MSNBC's role is rah-rah Democrats. Fox News's role is rah-rah Republicans. And then you have the culture of mainstream media in general, which is they're, they're part of the same social class as the politicians. Right. So to your point, you're not going to raise hell. You're not going to question motivations and intentions of politicians to be like, you just took $750,000 from Big Pharma, Kirsten Cinema. I think that might be affecting your position on now not wanting to lower drug prices. Right. You know what I mean? So it's just, as an institution, they're totally broken. And the fact of the matter is, it's in part because of that why we're successful with what we do. But I would trade it off for a second in order to have a functioning a media, media that so that because then properly. they would hold the powerful accountable like David Sirota does. And then we'd have, you know, a country maybe that mirrors France a little more, where in France, the saying is the government is terrified of the people here. The people are ter terrified of the government mm. with a media that's truly educating people. Yeah, people would be more pissed off. They'd know where to put the anger. And then you'd have a government that would fall in line more often. Yeah, you'd just have a more honest reflection of what's actually happening so that people would know people would know better what to do with that, right? Where 
it may be easier to see, like, oh, Donald Trump is not going to be the answer to my problem. Right. Mm -hmm. That we have these bigger structural issues. And if we want politicians to actually respond to us and what we want them to do, we're going to have to change this thing at a broader level. It's not even so much about these individual players and actors, even though they obviously have plenty of um, personal agency and they deserve to be held account for the areas where they fail ultimately to deliver or stand up for the principles that they ran on to get elected. But you have these bigger structural issues that we have to deal with if we're actually going to have a system that is remotely responsive to our needs. Very true. Uh, and on that note, shameless plug time, everybody. Uh, if you are not a subscriber on Substack, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Uh, just go ahead, pay the $5 a month, get the Crystal Kyle and Friends videos a day early, read the awesome newsletters from Piper. Shout out to Piper. Thanks for all you do, Piper. Um, and yeah, for those of you who want to just play it cool and listen to the audio, whatever. It's free, <laughs> but whatever, bro. I don't even care. I don't even care if you join and pay the $5 a month. I don't even care. You care. Okay, I care. Please pay the $5 a month because <laughs> we don't take any money from any advertisers, any corporations. We're, this is 100% uh, small donor funded. So yeah. we really appreciate and hold all of you dearly. And don't forget, don't worry, we didn't forget about doing a behind the scenes video for when we surpassed Barry Weiss. Uh, she's just almost impossible to pass. So help us pass Barry Weiss. <laughs> yeah, she's got a little, uh, she's got a little shtick worked out that's working pretty well. Apparently bashing Palestinians and saying Israel never does anything wrong is popular. Apparently pretending like you're against identity politics while weaponizing your own identity at every turn. That's right. Yeah. It's working out well for her. So anyway, anyway, screw Barry Weiss. We'll end on that note. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Love y'all. We will see you here next week.